Now, um, this arrived a while ago. Um, it's Kirsty Watt's debut novel, The Legacy of Elizabeth Pringle. Um, round of applause for that. I think it does look very beautiful. Look at that, you can see. Um, and it's a very, very beautiful-looking novel, and I was fully prepared to hate it um, because I thought, well, hasn't she got enough going on? Um, isn't it enough for her to be clear-headed and fair-minded and, you know, have the basic moves to thriller? Um, can't, can't she be happy with what she's got? Um, and, she, and she writes this novel. And, the, you know, and so the novel sat for a while because I felt envious and better. And eventually I picked it up, um, and I'm just, I'm just being honest, and it is... A fantastic novel. Um, it's about a very old lady on the Isle of Arran, which if you've been to the West Coast, you'll see, and it looks kind of like a, a person lying down in repose. Um, this amazing, special, magical place. And it's about a very old lady who lives on the island and who dies um, and leaves her house to a young woman called Martha that she's never met before. Um, and the novel is about Martha trying to work out um, who, who Elizabeth Pringle really was. Um, and... It is a beautifully written novel, quite spooky. Um, we won't reveal the, the spoiler. Um, but anyway, she's going to come read from it, and then we're going to talk about it. Please welcome Kirsty Wark. God, this is really weird. I mean, you're all alive there, and as Lisa Hyde, my publisher, pointed out so kindly, if you watch Gogglebox, you realise that with the bit when Newsnight's on, everybody's asleep. <laughs> <laughs> so, shall You're I not, go? Yes, you can go. So, so I mean, I'm I'm used to doing things in time slots. So I don't know actually if I'm reading going to be reading too much or too little. But I read two different pieces because you probably also need to keep your mouth close to the microphone. Okay, sorry, you don't sorry. have the advantage of Porsche telly mics. Sorry, no, no, this is cheap mics. Um, feel like That's contestant. That's all it's cheap about tonight, Kirsten. <laughs> let, let, let that go. Not anyway. your outfit, no. <laughs> anyway. Definitely not. Uh, but, but Elizabeth's story is told as a first-person memoir, and Martha's story is told as a third-person narrative, and the book goes between the two. Um, and um, I, I know we'll talk later, but um, th this is the story of Elizabeth Pringle, who, who never left Aaron, and really... Part of the inspiration for this, although not the story, was my own talking about family and talking about Patrick's family, my own great aunt, um, we can talk about later. But anyway, here is uh, the beginning. Homely, 20 Shore Road, Lamlash, Isle of Arran. Dear Mrs. Morrison, a long time ago, almost 34 years past, you wrote to me requesting that I contact you should I ever wish to leave my home. I knew then that I would never leave anywhere else and so there was no point in my replying to you. I have lived in this house since I was eight years old, but I am what people these days describe as ancient and somewhat frail. Though I have managed perfectly well on my own until now, I know I am not long for this world. I have told my doctor I will move to a small nursing home, as I realize it will be less trouble for him, and I have finally locked up the house. My family, such as it was, is long dead. There is no one alive but me. I recall very clearly the summer that you put the letter through my door. I was sewing in the cool shade of the dining room when I heard the letterbox clatter. I was so startled I put my needle into my finger and dropped a spot of blood onto my canvas. I saw you almost every day pushing your carriage pram along Shore Road, your long hair flying and your bright skirt billowing about your ankles. You looked very young. 
The sound of your voice carried up my garden as you sang to your daughter. Or perhaps it was just the lilt of your voice as you talked to her, and she made soft, mewling sounds back. I remember that on one occasion you waved to me, and I think I tilted my head towards you. Perhaps you did not see. There have been times when that scene has come to me vividly, and I have wondered what has become of you both. My life has been spent here on this island. I am instructing my solicitor to write to you at the address on your letter. Homely is yours if you still wish it. If he does not hear from you within three months, or if you write to say that you no longer have any interest in living here, he will follow alternative instructions. This may, of course, now seem a fanciful idea to you, but if you do still think my house is the loveliest in Lamlash and you come to live here, I ask only that you keep my garden well. It has been a source of peace and joy to me. Yours sincerely, Elizabeth Pringle. This is Martha Anna's daughter now. Martha put her hand on the calloused iron gate and as she pushed it back it replied with its familiar whine of resistance. The other Victorian villas in the oval seemed to crowd around, watching her, alert to her upturned collar, her mouth set firm and the worry in her eyes. The tall trees on each side of the path stood out against the grey of the Glasgow March sky, their spidery branches intertwined in a crooked canopy. As she walked towards the familiar red door, the gravel beneath her feet was unforgiving. It had been barely a month since Martha last visited, but the foreboding that had settled in her chest like a piece of granite was now joined by a sharp pain of loss. It threatened to crush the breath from her. Anna Morrison was no longer at home. There was no excited greeting. Martha stepped into the hall, a carpet of scattered mail obscuring the wooden floor, and was shocked by the echoing silence. Doors stood open to rooms as if begging for company. She breathed in the stale air, suffused with an acrid scent like the smell of a charity shop filled with its jumble of cardigans and winter coats and once-cherished china teacups, remnants of past lives hastily discarded. She sat down heavily at the old pine table in the kitchen, indelibly scored and scarred with family life, a much-scrubbed coffee ring, the indentation of a line of writing, and stared at the painting of the two of them on the opposite wall. Martha a little girl on Anna's knee, in a white blouse embroidered with roses and a pink dirndl skirt, her long legs splayed and her feet bare, and her mother holding her close, her eyes cast downwards. It always reminded Martha of a painting by Mary Cassatt. Perhaps that's what the artist intended, but as Susie loved to point out, if it was, it was a very pale imitation. People said Martha had grown up to look just like Anna, the big brown eyes and the high forehead and the same, same slender frame. But most of all, friends said they had the same beautiful smile. Compliments embarrassed and delighted Martha. But as she looked round her favourite room, she caught sight of herself in the old mottled mirror, saw her auburn hair flat against her head, faint worry lines between her strong arched eyebrows. Today she was looking all of her 35 years. Martha was wearing her favourite grey cashmere cardigan with her jeans, the one she brought to celebrate her first byline in the Caledonian. She still loved the feel of it, but in the watery light it seemed to drain any colour from her face, and she realised how wan and dejected she must look to the outside world. Hanging from the corner of a mirror were some amber beads threaded and knotted on brown twine. Anna Morrison could never quite shake off the hippie in her, even as her 60th birthday approached. Martha 
one so mortified by her mother's abiding passion for long skirts and floppy hats, now longed for her standard greeting. Hey, how are you, babe? And the enveloping, sometimes too urgent embrace that followed, redolent with reeve gauche and roll-ups. Martha closed her eyes and pulled together fragments of an old late-night conversation, the two of them sitting at a pine table in the flickering candlelight. But did you never feel you lost out by having us so young? How did I lose out? You were both a gift to us, Anna had replied serenely. But you'd hardly started your career, and God knows you tell us often enough. The world is just waiting for us. I loved your dad, and I wanted his babies, Martha remembered. She'd faltered, brushing her long bejeweled fingers along her arm before she went on softly. And it was just as well that we got to it, wasn't it? Now Martha turned her head towards the window, where a collage of once brightly coloured tissue paper was stuck on a square of greaseproof paper taped to the glass. In sunshine, the light danced through the faded orange and purple and blue, throwing motes of colour into the room. But today the hues looked flat and solid. At the edge of the picture were written the words, Susie, age six, after Matisse. Attached by a paper clip, there was a curling photograph of a little girl holding the collage, with a young man crouching beside her, smiling proudly, their father, John Morrison. They'd been there, attached to the glass, for as long as Martha could remember. Neither she nor Anna, and especially not Susie, would ever take the photograph down. Martha went over to the high mantelpiece above the wood-burning stove and touched each familiar thing. The chipped Weems pottery candlesticks decorated with blousy pink roses that she'd given to Anna for two years before. The Edwardian carriage clock with a checkered inlay that they'd found on one of their foraging expeditions around junk shops. Its once comforting beat, now silent. Martha felt for the little key beneath it and turning the clock around, prized off a brass disc and wound the spring up until it was tight and the clock came back to life. She adjusted the hands and stepped back a little to admire it, listening as the kitchen filled with its tick, tick, tick. Her hand passed over the empty bottle of Krug that they'd downed to celebrate Eng Martha's English degree, her name and date scrawled on the label. She lifted the jar that stood behind, beside it, of sea glass and pieces of patterned china, precious treasure collected on rainy, briny beaches, and rolled it around between her hands, watching the shapes tumble over each other, coming together and separating in random arrangements. As she was about to return the jar to the shelf, she noticed it had been sitting on top of a letter. The envelope, addressed to a Mrs. A. Morrison and marked urgent, had been torn open and roughly resealed. The anxiety that had recently become Martha's constant companion suffused her chest as she pulled out the single sheet of cream notepaper. The letter from the Glasgow firm of solicitors Hardy and Lynch was short and formal, requesting that Mrs. Anna Morrison contact Fergus Hardy at her earliest possible convenience. Martha stood still. The clock sounded louder and harsher and the distant, distant traffic roared closer. She sank down again at the table and laid her forehead into her arms, wondering if her mother had done something untoward. Instinctively, she sought out the photograph in the tarnished silver frame in the bookcase. Anna wearing a long embroidered cheesecloth dress, a circle of flowers in her hair, the glint of her dangling Indian earrings. Her father, his arms encircling Anna tightly, grinning, a cheroot clamped to his teeth beneath his droopy zapata moustache, his cowboy boots adding to his tall, already gaunt frame. 
Anna's stories of 1969 were of a golden year. They danced to Dylan's Lay Lady Lay after the wedding ceremony. Then, when Martha was little and Susie after her, John Morrison had held them and sung the song over and over as he shushed them to sleep. Martha stared at the picture of her father, trying to summon him up, wishing him here now. She remembered that day in the hospital, watching his raggedy, cackly breath finally ease away to a sigh. Martha had laid her head on his chest, Susie whimpering, terrified beside her. Martha's 16th birthday. How does that feel? How does that feel? <laughs> Weird. Yeah, I bet. Um, so the book, you, there's you, so many lovely descriptions of things in this book, and it is, it is a book of things in that the people in it are very much represented by the artefacts around them. Yeah. Every single character has their own taste, and that's one of the things I love about the books is, is all those kind of rich descriptions. But before we get into the characters and into those things, let's talk about Aaron um, and why you, why you chose it as a, as a place to set your story. Um, it's always been a place that I've gone uh, with my family. My mother and father separately went there as teenagers. And um, I've always really loved the place. And then almost nearly a decade ago, we'd gone with one of these huge family holidays you go with, with tons of children. And, of course, it rained for a month. And um, I don't care about, you know, Alan, my husband said, look, you know, there's no way. If don't you know, forget. If you think we're buying a holiday house here, you forget that right now. And um, I thought, I have to keep a connection with the island that's more than just nipping backwards and forwards, which you do all the time. And so I kind of wanted to write about the place I love so much and almost this why, is a why kind did of you love it so much I mean just because I love the I love the topography I love the nature of the idea of an Edwardian place for holidays that people had beautiful houses along the shore and they would build back houses that they would retreat to to let the holiday makers from the mainland come oh, what so they would rent their front the front yeah, house that's out what and go happened. And live in the back these all house. these Edwardian houses Amazing. in fact this Edwardian house is probably one of those houses as well so anyway it's a place of many contrasts and it's very beautiful and it has lovely memories for me and so I wanted in a way to write a love letter to Aaron and in writing it I learned a lot about the island that I didn't know um, a, 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 an awful lot in fact such as um, when I started writing the book I had absolutely no idea that 18 planes had been downed on Aaron in the Second World War and what happened was it was the route for the North Atlantic um, the Canadians first came over and it was the North Atlantic that came over into Prestwick Airport, which was where the, um, the air base was for the, uh, then for the Americans as well. And Goat Fell, it's not a Monroe, but it's just short of a Monroe. And coming in at night with very little light, planes crashed into the hills of Goat Fell and the other hills as well. And there was a war graves commission. There's a lot of war graves on the island, I didn't which I didn't know. And so when I was writing the book, this kind of led to a particular character development. Yes, it certainly does. Yes, but uh, sex as well. There is, there is sex. There's sex in all of tonight's but books. But thank God, not much sex, because you know I, that's one award I would never want to get. <laughs> Um, no, the sex that's in there isn't of the bad sex kind. Can I just say, do you remember when we had Manil Suri um, at Salon and Rupert Thompson, two guests at the same Salon, both shortlisted for the bad sex award on the same night, and they were just like, but everybody at the Salon liked it, and it's like, well, they're filthy, of course they liked it. Um, but... Um, so, but this, this, the, the, the sex that's in, 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 in your book is, is, I always want to say genteel in a way, but it's kind of all off, off stage for the most part. Yeah. But, um, but the island, I, again, I've seen the island. I've never been on the island. Seriously? I've, no, I've never been on it. Because I've, I've always thought, I don't think I would feel welcome there somehow, that it's 
because it is so islandy. It's so kind of other, you know. I, I, it yeah. just feels it's very. You can see it, but it feels very distant, and it looks but different. It is. Know? I mean, and you feel when you go onto the island, there is a different atmosphere, and you feel you can relax. And I, there's a kind of ritual to going and everything else. And so, yeah. it was very important to me to set set the story there. But it was also very important to me to kind of what I really wanted to do was reclaim the life of an older woman. I think in our society, particularly women in their eighties, yeah. um, who have witnessed so much in their lives, the privations of the Second World War, all things that happened to them. What I wanted to do was have people understand that I wanted a backstory and I wanted to create a backstory for a woman who has had an extraordinary life. Yeah, I mean, it, her life is history. I mean, that's yeah. what's so great about it. All these events touch her life yeah. on this kind of wee, strange place that's yeah. out of the way, yeah. um, but yet it's touched by, you know, by wars and also by empire. I think that was one of the interesting parallels mm-hmm. with Patrick's mm-hmm. book. A lot where, of people left, you know, and we had to leave Aaron... Um, and it's about Elizabeth Pringle not being able to go. Why did they have to leave? Well, they had to leave because there were clearances, because there was no jobs, because um, there was nothing for them. Right. And particularly after the First World War, there was nothing. A lot of people came back. Um, Elizabeth's father didn't come back. And the, the letters that Elizabeth are in the house are based on my great-uncle's letters um, because he went away. He was an early volunteer. So he was away for four years, and he was decorated. He was a machine gunner. He was moved from a Glasgow battalion, the Pals Battalion, to be a machine gunner. And he survived four years of the war, and he wrote these extraordinary letters back to his mama and papa in Glasgow. And the last letters were all about, you know, I, God, I'm so looking forward to seeing you, and I hope that uh, you'll be spared the flu. And he was dead six days later after he wrote that last letter, and he thought he'd survived four years of the war, and, which was quite extraordinary. Did you um, know that family story when you started writing? Because I know that you were doing some research for a TV programme and you found yes, that I, out. Yes, I didn't found a lot. I found, I mean, but when I saw the photographs of where he's buried in Ask, you know, um, uh, in northern France, I hadn't appreciated. I looked at the black and white photographs properly. That my great grandmother's in the photographs. The, she's just a shadowy figure, and very few families went out to the graves. But my hmm. my great my grandfather, my great grandfather, my great grandmother went. But the Elizabeth Pringle side of the story is. Um, I had a, a great aunt after whom my mother was named, great, my great aunt Berta, who was always slightly kind of bonkers. And um, she was the youngest of six. And her brothers, they were very successful fruit farmers and uh, tomatoes in the Clyde Valley. And my great aunt never worked. She was a VAD in, in the First World War, but she never worked. She was a princess. She sort of looked after the house. But the point was that she was engaged to be married to a young farmer in Lanarkshire. And at the very last minute, she didn't go. And she didn't go because she couldn't leave her family and she couldn't leave her house. And I had this idea that I wanted... And actually, she was, one of the, she was probably the first person in Scotland, I understand. She had a breakdown to have ECT, uh, which didn't obviously help. But anyway, yeah, <laughs> but she, but, so I wanted to... I, 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 that's what gave me the idea for the, 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 this idea that you, know, that you couldn't go. Lots mm. of people had to go and lots of people didn't go. And the idea that immigration is such a... It's, it's, it's so central to the Scottish psyche, immigration. And also, mm. people don't realise that or even think about it, but, you know, I have lots of great aunts and uncles that went. They didn't come back. You had a letter once every six months. It wasn't Skype. It wasn't email. It wasn't tweeting. It wasn't any of these things. It was a mm. huge, huge wrench for people. Yeah. And, and, but, it, yeah, it would have been a greater wrench for Elizabeth to leave the island where, yeah. you know, she's, she's, she's scratched her name on the, the trees. She goes there. She sees the tree growing and the initials changing. And she's very in, in touch with that landscape. Yeah. So the book has lots of beautiful gardens in mm-hmm. it and lots of beautiful art. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm thinking that, that that has to come from from you. The descriptions of pictures, I, 
I'm sure you must have a couple of those pictures you've been. I'd love a Craigie H's and I don't have a Craigie H's and I actually I don't have um, Fred Tomaselli either. Is another artist I really like. Uh, that there that wasn't in Elizabeth's house. It's another character's house. No, I, I do love art and um, I have lovely paintings, but not you know not Craigie H's and paintings. <laughs> but I have wonderful Archie Forest paintings. There's actually a painter is my neighbour. But I I feel very strongly about paintings, to be honest, and. Um, I think that... Can you paint? Is it, or no. is it one of those kind of, I just have no idea how this no, is done, so I've, you look I have at no it idea, but it. I have no idea, but I think that the, the comfort of a painting is enormous. And um, the comfort of seeing something other in a painting is enormous. And that's why I love um, Craig Aitchison's work, because he painted Holy Isle, his ashes are scattered in Limlash Bay. Mm-hmm. No, the, the, the pictures, the descriptions of the pictures... Um, are beautiful and sent me off to Google Images straight yeah. away because I didn't know a lot of them shamefully. So that was that was really attractive. Now Elizabeth, she, it, it would be very easy for her to be a kind of twee, you know, homebody type person. Mm. But you give her a very rich past, but you reveal it very slowly. Actually, it's almost like it's being revealed to her, which mm. I think is. One I of think the that is true though because she writes it at the end. I mean, she's ninety-five, and she writes it at the end of her life. And um, I mean, obviously. Me- you know, distance lens perspective, but it's also false memory. It's also lots yeah. of things. But it's all—it's as if she has been so locked up that it takes the arrival of two people in, in her life to unlock it. Mm. And in and those people uh, un- are Martha, and, uh, Martha, and, and also well, it takes the arrival of Niall and Saul. The, the, Saul's an American, and Niall is a, a Scottish um, horticulturist. And it takes them to unlock what she would never unlock to other people on the island. And I am also very slightly obsessed by the idea of otherness. And I think that. Often, women who don't conform, I mean, in this book, I mean, there are male characters in this book, but the, the, primarily my interest was in women's relationships, but also women who don't conform. And, I, and it's not that I'm interested in witchcraft per se, but I am interested in the idea of the other. And so therefore, things like, which I'm always fascinated by, I mean, Salem Witch Trials, the drowning of the witches in southern Scotland as well, women that don't, people just don't understand. Well, the scary old ladies that are scary, the, you know, Or scary witchy. young women yeah. that, that just don't conform. So therefore, you know, things like, you know, Mary Webb's Precious Bane, which is a book I absolutely adore, and Robert Louis Stevenson's wonderful short story, Thrawn Janet, are about women mm. that don't conform. And I love the idea that Elizabeth refuses to unlock herself in a way yeah. and so that she doesn't care if people don't like her. She yeah. doesn't care. She's really witty, but she doesn't care. Yeah, she uh, doesn't need to show it off, she? doesn't she? need to show off. Yeah. She's really, really brilliantly bright and very, you know, but, but yet she, she hides it all. She locks it inside. Um, like Mrs. Magic, in a way, she's an old lady with some secrets. Yes. Um, we don't, I'm not going to give away what, the, what no. the secret is, but it's, it's very Victorian in, in, in a way, um, what the, yeah. secret, the secret that you've given yeah. her. And I wondered again, did you know that, that that's what... Did you start yes. with the secret and build everything I around kn- it? I, kn- I knew what the secret was. Okay. It didn't, I knew what the secret was, yeah. Okay, and, but people, haven't, people here don't know, but yeah. I do. So just for the purposes, just for my benefit, was the secret based on anything in reality? Because it did, again, seem incredibly personal yeah. and real. Uh, not personal to me, but it's based in a reality. A reality, yeah, no. Good, I thought that. Um, okay, I'll take questions now. Uh, Sylvia, you had the first question on this time. I'm going to give that question to Kate, I think it is. Yes, Yes. Kate. Kate. Hi. Um, Thank you for sharing that with us. And I love the fact that you've got Precious Bane because I was listening to it and I was actually thinking about Mary Webb and I was almost hearing Mary sing her voice, but um, the thing that never makes me happy about Precious Bane is that it's mocked so much in the Gold Trumpet Park. Mm. Yeah, but... (laughs) (laughs) 
Yeah. I think I think I get what you're saying, which is which is how how are you going to handle the all the kind of ooh Kirsty Walsh written a debut novel, you know, well, a, 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 and in the context of, of of that particular kind of criticism. As yeah, well. I mean, I think the thing is that I mean I'm very well aware that I've had more than twenty years of reviewing books uh, on the Late Show and on the Review Show and so <laughs> forth, and but I kind of feel. I really want to put my money where my mouth is. And if I'm honest, I mean, I absolutely have had a really privileged career so far in television. I mean, I really have. And I've met the most extraordinary people and done what I think is probably a kind of wide range of work. But there's something about that, even though we've got DVDs, which is quite ephemeral. I'm so immensely proud of just actually having something like this to hold. You know, mm. whatever. I mean, I just think it's a completely different It just felt like, did you sniff it when it arrived? Or you just kind of like... like God. And Lisa Hyten was such a dragon when it came to the cover, and she really held out and held out and held out. And I think, you know, she's got her people just the most amazing cover, and I'm really, really thrilled with it. But also, the thing about this is I love working in teams. My job is to work in teams, and I found it really daunting at first, the idea that I was working my own. And then the characters were kind of my team. Yeah. And... That was extraordinary, and I, I found I would kind of really submerge myself, and I actually became rather resentful of having to leave the book when I was writing. When were you writing? Because it's not like you're all not All the busy. time. Yeah, no, no, but I wrote really all the time. And I, I, I mean, I have to say, Felici- Felicity Bryan, and I've said this is the most patient woman in the world, because I went to her with the idea of this so many years ago and left it for so long. Kids became teenagers. My mother died. All sorts of things happened. It was only, you know, about two and a half years ago. I thought, I was so desperate to... I'm just going to do this, and I don't care how long... You know, I shut myself away and I just made sure that every minute I had, I wrote. Mm. So satisfying when you finally get to that point where you have to do it and then you get to do it. Yeah. It's lovely. And I've had huge guidance, you know. I mean, it's been amazing. Will there be another one? Yeah, I've I've started the second book and it's not related to this. It's, it's It's actually set in the southwest of Scotland and unbeknownst to me, it's starting to come as a kind of historical book as well, but it's set in the present day and set in Galloway and the... New York of Hurricane Sandy. Right. Um, I'll take one more question here, and then we've got to go to to a food break. Go, Tom. Yes. Yeah, the two different voices that you're. Two very different voices, and I found Elizabeth's voice more quickly than I found Martha's voice. Oh, that's interesting because you have less in common with her. I found Elizabeth's voice less tricky, but also, you know, I. In Martha's voice was also attached to the fact that, you know, I have many, many friends, increasingly sadly, um, whose parents have dementia of one sort or another. And what I wanted to do was create a relationship between uh, Martha and her mother, which is now tricky, but what had been a brilliant relationship. And that idea, and I've got, you know, a dear friend here who's been through that, and I've got lots of friends who've been through that. And the idea that you have suddenly a relationship that you had a communication becomes incommunicable. Not always, which is really difficult, but most of the time. Mm. And so that's why I wanted to have this... I found it easier to think about Martha when I thought about Anna, Mm. her mother. Well, that's very interesting. And I'm really sorry that we have to leave it there and go to a break because I can see that the food has arrived and I know how you feel about food. Um, It's not pizza. It's uh, free-range organic Montessori chicken. Um, So you'll enjoy that. But before you get to that, please give a a huge, huge, huge thank you to Kirsty Ward. Amazing, (laughs) fantastic novel. You will love it. We'll be back in 20 minutes with Armistead Robin. Thanks very much.